0: Welcome, everyone. We're so glad that you're here. Yeah. Wherever you're worshiping, whether you're up in Saratoga, over in Greenbush in Half Moon, or at Latham, we're really pumped that you're here. For those of you who've been following with us the last couple of weeks, you know we're in a study through a book in the Bible called Ecclesiastes. It's the story of a man's journey, a man named Solomon, who was on a search for meaning in life. And he had drifted really from God and so much of the knowledge he had of God and the experience with God from previous years. And he was really seeking for meaning under the sun. That means he was trying to look at life without God in the equation. And he's coming to some interesting conclusions. But today we come to chapter 3 in this little book. And today's passage is one of the most well-known, iconic passages in all of the Bible. I've heard this scripture, especially the first eight verses, read at a number of different funeral services in the past. But I've also heard it read at happier times, like special ceremonies and even read at weddings. This passage has also been made into a number one hit rock song. Many of you may not know that, you're far too young to know that in 1965, a group called The Birds took Pete Seeger's song based upon this passage and kind of reworked it and turned it into a number one billboard hit entitled Turn, Turn, Turn. So let's look at this very poetic and beautiful passage and then let's take some minutes and try to unpack it and see... What it really has to say to our lives today. There is a time for everything and a season for every activity under heaven. A time to be born and a time to die. A time to plant and a time to uproot. A time to kill and a time to heal. A time to tear down and a time to build. A time to weep and a time to laugh. A time to mourn and a time to dance. A time to scatter stones and a time to gather them. A time to embrace and a time to refrain. A time to search and a time to give up. A time to keep and a time to throw away. All of you hoarders need to hear that one. There is a time to throw away. A time to tear and a time to mend. A time to be silent and a time to to speak, a time to love, and a time to hate, a time for war, and a time for peace. Now, I'm going to stop right there today, although there's many other connected verses we could read. In this passage, Solomon gives us 14 pairs of contrasts. Things that seem to be in juxtaposition with each other. Some of them seem pretty obvious, like a time to be born and a time to die, because one out of every one person dies. So it's kind of a no-brainer. And things like a time to laugh and a time to weep. We all recognize right away, well, of course, that's a part of life, a time to be silent and a time to speak. These are all kind of no-brainers that we, most of us, readily embrace. But then there are a number of things in here that kind of make us scratch our head a little bit. They're more difficult for us to embrace. A time to kill, a time to heal, a time for love, a time for hate, a time for war, and a time for peace. These are more difficult for most people to embrace. So I want to take a few minutes here and describe to you Two basic approaches to what this passage means. And the whole time, I want it to be very personal for you. That's why I'm calling it, What Time Is It? Because I'm really curious as to what time it is in your life. What is God doing in you? Because the Bible wasn't written just to fill our heads with information. It was written to change our lives. And I believe today's passage God has something to speak through it to you. The first thing I would ask you to consider is that one can look at this as a simple description of life, kind of the way life works. And I would suggest to you, and I think most of the Bible commentaries that I'm reading would agree with this assessment, that's essentially what Solomon seems to be saying here. If you look at life under the sun, without God in the equation, life purely from an empirical point of view, it just kind of can appear at times to be this relentless monotony of events. It just goes round and round and round and round, same old thing, same old thing. And that's kind of a common theme in the book of Ecclesiastes. Let me give you an example of what I mean by that. Back in chapter 1, verse 4, Solomon wrote, generations come and generations go, but the earth remains forever. Sun rises and the sun sets and hurries back to where it rises. The wind blows to the south and turns to the north. Round and round it goes, where it stops and nobody knows. Oh, that's not in there, but that's kind of the feeling, that's kind of the feeling that he's giving here, ever returning on its course. All streams flow into the sea, yet the sea is never full. To the place the streams come from, there they return again. Now, do you catch the feeling that comes through in that? Life is this very predictable, relentless monotony. This cycle that just goes round and round and round. And a few verses later, he puts it like this, verse 9. What has been will be again. What has been done will be done again. There's nothing new under the sun. In other words, Solomon's saying, look, if somebody claims to have a new idea, something novel, some new kind of experience, he says, they're deceived, they're naive. It's been here before. It just may have a new name, a new expression. Is there anything of which one can say, look, this is something new? It was here already, he declares, long ago. It was here before our time. Somebody might write over that passage, the more things change, the more they stay the same. And that feeling has even gotten proverbially into our very culture. As often you'll hear people say, the more things change, the more they stay the same. But then in chapter 3, verse 15, we read, whatever is has already been, and what will be has been before, and God will call the past to account Again, the theme I'm simply highlighting for you with these few examples is he's going like it's just all very predictable and dull. There's nothing really new when you boil it all down. Or how about this example from chapter 5. Naked a man comes from his mother's womb and as he comes so he departs. He takes nothing from his labor that he can carry in his hand. As a man comes so he departs and what does he gain since he toils For the wind. And then one final verse here. Chapter 6, verse 10. Whatever exists has already been named, and what man is has been known. Now, the reason I read those verses for you, I want you to catch this huge theme in the book of Ecclesiastes that there's this sort of weary tedium to life. Have you ever felt it? Do you ever get tired of just going to work? And every day looks pretty much the same, and week flows into week, and the weeks begin to kind of blur and look the same, and then the years begin to go by, and they even begin to kind of look the same. That's what Solomon is describing here, this relentless repetition. There's nothing new under the sun. Now, I know you're already feeling depressed to listen to that, right? But remember, his premise is life without God in the equation. And that's exactly what you're left with. A pretty depressing picture, quite honestly. But that raises an important question. Why do things happen the way they do? I mean, why do you live in the United States of America? Why are you in the Capital District of New York? Why are you alive right now? Well, I believe the answer ultimately to these kinds of questions is the providence of God. You say, wait a minute, what does that big word mean, the providence of God? I would define it like this, that God is continually involved in his creation in such a way that he preserves it, maintains it, And ultimately works out his purposes in the world. And here's the kicker. Here's the most amazing part of God's providence. While he preserves, maintains, and works out his purposes in the world. He's ultimately doing that. He does it in such a way that he preserves our free will. And the choices that we make really do make a difference, and we will be accountable for those choices. I believe Scripture teaches that the providence of God and the free will of humans work together in a marvelous harmony. And I think that Solomon is saying here in Ecclesiastes, look, if you look at life purely under the sun, without God in the equation— It may indeed look at times like you're locked into this sort of fatalistic determinism. This sort of cause and effect thing, which you feel at times like you're standing on the sidelines and you're just watching life happen and you can't really do a lot to change it or affect it in any way. Hear me today loud and clear. Scripture does not teach, in all the other places... Scripture does not teach that sort of hopeless, deterministic view. But if you're doing the experiment that Solomon is doing, life under the sun with no God in the equation, trust me, friends, you're probably going to land at something close to that place. I'll never forget one of the the greatest memories of my childhood. I don't know why it's so etched on my mind. But it was actually a little school musical that my sister, Trina, was singing in. I believe I was in the third grade at this time in Lawrenceburg Public School. And so, naturally, I was invited to go, all the other students, to this musical that she was singing in. And I'll never forget the song. I just walked out that day singing this song. It was popularized by Doris Day. And boy, it just had a melody that stuck. The lyrics go like this When I was just a little girl, I asked my mother, What will I be? Will I be pretty? Will I be rich? Here's what she said to me Que será será? Whatever will be, will be. The future's not ours to see. Que será será? When I grew up and fell in love, I asked my sweetheart, what lies ahead? Will we have rainbows day after day? Here's what my sweetheart said. I'll bet you could actually sing it. Come on. You didn't think you were going to sing this song today. But yes, Grace Fellowship at all of our campuses, join in. Que sera, sera. Come on, sing it. Whatever will be, will be. The future's not ours to see. Que sera, sera, Hey, you're going to sing again in just a moment, so get ready. <laughs> All of you who didn't sing, you get ready. You're going to love it. <laughs> now I have children of my own, the song goes on to say. They ask their mother, what will I be? Will I be handsome? Will I be rich? I tell them tenderly. Here's your cue. Que sera. sera. Whatever will be, will be. The future's not ours to see. Que sera, sera. Now listen, 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 listen. If there's no God, if it's life just under the sun, if God's not involved providentially in his creation, you could just write over everything, que sera, sera. And people who've commented on that song, and it's a wonderfully catchy song. I'm not critiquing the song, but many people who've talked about that song describe the philosophy in it as cheerful fatalism. That's the phrase you'll see on Wikipedia and numerous other websites, numerous other places. It's fatalism, but it's cheerful fatalism. Like, hey. All this stuff is happening, and there's nothing really that much that you can do about it. So just get used to it, and just deal with it the best you can, and that's all you conclude with life under the sun with no God in the equation. But Friends, I'm here to tell you today that there's another way. I'm here to tell you today that there's another way that we need to look at life, not just as... A description of a relentless monotony that's kind of meaningless and we're standing on the sidelines and we're not involved meaningfully at all. So, K Sarah, Sarah, just get used to it. Deal with it the best you can. I believe we can see this not as a description of life, but as a prescription for life. What's the difference? In the first scenario, without God in the equation, you're just kind of a part of a cheerful fatalism. Life is just happening, and you're just kind of stuck there, and it doesn't mean much anyway, so just do the best you can. I hope you understand that is far different than the view that Scripture gives us. So let's explore that for a few moments. In this passage in Ecclesiastes 3, Solomon, as we read earlier, gives a series of both negative and positive things that he says there's a time for. Let me just read the positive ones to you right now. There's a time to be born, time to plant, heal, build, build a time to laugh, a time to dance, time to gather stones, time to embrace, search, keep. Mend, speak, a time to love, and a time for peace. What good things. We love those words. They're wonderful. We want to embrace those robustly and make them a part of our life. But they're offset with all the negatives that contrast with them. Let me read just the negatives. Time to die. Uproot. Kill. Tear down. Weep, mourn, time to scatter stones, time to refrain from embracing, time to give up, to throw away, to tear, to be silent, to hate, and a time for war. Again, I say, we love the positives, but we're not so sure what to do with those negatives. And especially if it's just life under the sun... No God involved, boy, you just better get used to it and deal with it the best you can because you can't really make a difference. So what many people in our culture have done to try to just deal with the negative things in life is we've developed a whole lifestyle built around positive thinking. Now go with me here. Positive thinking is where we get a hold of the positive things, the things that we believe are good, and we embrace them, and that kind of shapes our whole approach to life. I've got many positive thinking books in my library, probably 20, 25 of them. I've read tons of books like that. And they're all designed to try to help you have a better experience in this life on this planet. And they'll tell you things like this. Always use positive words and positive concepts when you're talking. Don't say things like, I can't, or it's not possible. No, say, I can. It is possible. I am able. It can be done. And try to disregard all those negative thoughts. And along with this are many other correlated ideas, like positive visualization. This is used often in the sports world, by the way. I used to do it in basketball. Visualize that free throw growing in, and it's going to be a lot more likely to go in. Visualize that golf ball actually landing on the green, and guess what? Your body, your muscle memory will have a powerful tendency toward making that happen minimize the time you listen to the news because it's mostly negative anyway and it'll just drag you down, right? And isn't that true, pretty much? So classic positive thinking says, look, no matter what your circumstances are right now, if you begin to consistently and persistently think positively, it's going to lift you and your whole experience in life will begin to change and you will have a positive outcome. What do I think of all that? Oh, I want you to listen carefully. I want you to listen carefully. Don't react too quickly. I think there's a lot of wisdom in that. I really do. In fact, if you're asking me, would I re- rather be around positive thinkers or negative thinkers, I'll take the positive thinkers every time. I want staff people who are positive in their thinking and their attitudes. I want family who are positive in their attitudes. I want friends who are positive. I despair. I deplore being around negative people who are crotchety and always looking at the negative side of things. I'd rather be around positive thinkers any day. And can we acknowledge something? Both positive and negative thinking is contagious. Would you agree with that? I mean, you get a negative person on a team and they start vocalizing their negativity, I'm telling you, they'll take everybody down. You get a positive person in a family, let's say, especially if it's someone who's looked up to, maybe a mom or dad, and they're consistently positive, they can raise a whole family up to a higher level and eliminate a lot of pessimism and negativity. I love positive thinkers. I was struck this week as the Washington Nationals won the World Series. And in the interviews afterward, how did you guys do it? Wow, you lost three in a row at home, for goodness sakes. How could you come back and win this series here in Houston? And consistently, the comments were about positive thinking, still believing in ourselves, knowing that we're just going to hang in there and grind it out. That's the way winning people tend to do it. And let's be crystal clear Our mindsets do greatly affect the people around us and greatly affect the atmosphere in the room. All of that is true. And for that reason, I believe there's a bit of wisdom in positive thinking. Are you with me? I hope you're all hearing me at all of our campuses. I like positive thinkers. I hope you are a positive thinker. You know there's a big butt coming, right? But, but some people today, even in the church, have taken positive thinking into cuckoo land, okay? And positive thinking becomes a problem when it bego- begins to go down negative theological roads. So I'm going to give you two things to be concerned about If your positive thinking, teaching, training, all that takes you down these roads, you have just entered cuckoo land, okay? Are you with me? Here we go. When positive thinking begins to deny the reality of evil and suffering in the world, you've just entered cuckoo land, okay? When it begins to deny the reality of evil and suffering, and or, here's the second thing, and or... It only denies the reality of evil and suffering, but it begins to believe that life at its best on this planet will only have pleasurable experiences. You have just become a heretic. That is anti-biblical thinking. I've heard some pastors talking about movements within the Christian church now. These are not folks out. These are people inside the church who are so into just making positive confessions and trying to be positive that they're changing the traditional wedding vows. This is really happening, folks, in certain circles, because they're too negative. The traditional vows go, I take you to have and to hold from this day forward for better or worse, for richer or poorer, to love and to cherish, you know, in sickness and health, all those things. And so they're changing the vows to only acknowledge the positive. I take you to have and to hold... From this day forward, for better, for richer in health, to love, to cherish from this day forward. Well, I like the sentiment behind it, but again, it's cuckoo land. That would be wonderful if it correlated with reality. It would be wonderful if it were true, but marriage is about not only laughing together, but also weeping together. Marriage is about very high highs and some pretty low lows. And guess what? Here's the the wonderful part. You will look back after the fact and say some of those times we wept together, some of those difficult times were the best times. Those were the times that bonded you together the most and you got to the mountaintop because you were willing to go through the valley. Now, why am I talking about all this? Let me tell you why. I want to be very, very clear. As a pastor, I regularly have conversations with people who are disappointed in God and, in fact, angry at God. And they don't want to admit that right at first, but if I probe a little bit, they will finally admit, yeah, I guess I am. I'm angry at God. Why are they angry at God? Because life is starting to get frustrating and painful. Life is not meeting their expectations. And somewhere, somehow, they developed an expectation that God would give them certain things. And now they're blaming God for not living up to his end of the deal. Please listen carefully. If you're a professing follower of Jesus Christ today, and you somehow got the expectation that following Christ would be all goosebumps and glory... And no agony and no discomfort. You did not get those expectations from a faithful reading of Scripture. So you may need to call up the TV evangelist who gave you those expectations and explain to him or her that they sold you some bad advertising there. Scripture promises this. That both joy and pain show up in the Christian life usually on parallel tracks, and often at about the same time. That's what Scripture teaches, and that's what Christian experience bears out for generation after generation, that both joy and pain, both pleasurable experiences and very difficult experiences, show up on parallel tracks in your life at about the same time. And here's the funny thing, sometimes you misjudge which one is really the blessing. Especially if you think God only blesses through pleasurable things. Sometimes he blows your mind and shows you that the greatest blessing in his life wasn't the thing you were tickled about, it's the thing that you were grieving about. An example of this would be Galatians 4. Paul there writing to the Galatian Christian says, As you know, it was because of an illness that I first preached the gospel to you. Even though my illness was a trial to you, you did not treat me with contempt or scorn. Are you getting what that's saying? The whole church in Galatia first heard the gospel. That church was literally established Because of a trial, an illness in the Apostle Paul's life. What Paul is saying here is, look, if if I had not been going through that illness, who knows what God would have done, but I sure wouldn't have been there preaching the gospel to you except for that illness. So what a blessing showed up in a strange package. Dr. Paul Brand was a leprosy doctor in India for many, many years. And many of you may know that leprosy is a disease that destroys the nervous system and you lose feeling in your extremities. And so it's not uncommon in India, Africa, and many other parts of the world to see people who are victims of leprosy to have a nose that's missing or ears missing or fingers or hands or feet. Because... When you don't attend to them, they get injured. Infection can set in, even gangrene. And so it's common to have people who are horribly disfigured from this disease. Dr. Paul Brand and Phil Yancey wrote a book together called The Gift of Pain. The Gift of Pain. And Dr. Brand makes this staggering statement. He says, if I could give my patients one gift, It would be the gift of pain. The gift of pain. He goes on to explain. Because sometimes it's only through pain that you understand something's wrong. There's a problem. So what am I saying today, brothers and sisters? Let's be careful and not turn Jesus Christ our Lord into a glorified pain reliever like a super strength ibuprofen or something, as if his primary goal in our lives is to eliminate any discomfort. What is his number one goal, Pastor Rex? What does Jesus want to do in my life? This is where it gets very personal. His number one goal in your life and mine is to conform us to his character, his image, and his likeness. And if we erroneously think that his number one goal is to exempt us from pain, we may be getting angry with him when he doesn't deliver what he never promised to deliver. Friend, it's so often that our love, our dependence, and our obedience to God are stimulated and maintained through trouble, not through ease. let me ask you today, as we begin to wrap up this message, what time is it for you? Are you in one of those seasons like Solomon where you go, wow, it's just this relentless monotony, and I sure do wish it were different because it feels like I'm almost a victim standing on the sidelines. I can't really do much to impact this, and I don't really see God working in this much. Is that the time you're in in your life? I hope not. But some may find themselves feeling that way. Can I tell you something? Embrace the positive things he mentions here, but don't despise the ones you think are negative. Because God's greatest blessings often show up in strange packages. Please don't believe that your best life on this planet will have all pleasure in it. It will not. The best life is a combo of blessings. Some come in joyful packages. Some come in pretty painful ones. But if you're a follower of Jesus, God is working in all of it for your good and his glory. I hope you get that message today. That is a life change. Let me tell you, that is a message America needs to hear. That's a message the church needs to hear. That's the message we all need to hear because we easily forget it. We kind of get duped into thinking that God's greatest blessings are always just going to be these feel good things. They are not. I close with this The Apostle Paul is undoubtedly one of the most dynamic Christians, if not the most dynamic follower. That our Lord Jesus has ever had. I mean, I'm telling you, this guy was unstoppable. He had all kinds of challenges in his life, but you couldn't stop him from taking the gospel anywhere he could and sharing Jesus. He was a dynamo for the Lord. And yet, you may know that he had this thing called a thorn in the flesh. He called it a messenger of Satan to torment him. And he pleaded with God to take it away. But here was God's answer. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Paul, do you want to be a powerhouse for God? Sure. My power is made perfect, not in a person who seems to have it all together, it was all goosebumps and glory. My power is perfected in weakness. Paul, I have a vested interest in your weakness, man. He goes on. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses, so that Christ's power may rest on me. He goes even further. That is why, for Christ's sake, I delight in weaknesses, in insults, in hardships, in persecutions, in difficulties. For when I am weak then I am strong. That is the mature Christian perspective. So if life is just a relentless monotony of events, time to be born, time to die, and you're just kind of standing on the sideline, I tell you, that is one depressing life. But if life is as I believe Scripture teaches... Yes, a series of events, but in every one of them, whether they're packaged as joyful or painful, in every one of them, our sovereign God is at work. Oh, my goodness. That makes all the difference in the world. So what time is it for you? Embrace the positives, but don't reject. The things you think are negative. It may be through that discomfort, that challenge, that stretching, that hard season that God is doing the deepest work he's ever done in you. And if you try to just slough it off, you're going to miss the greatest blessing of your life. Father, thank you for the teaching of Ecclesiastes. And thank you that you are the providential God who is always working. Our Lord Jesus taught us, my Father is always at work to this very day, John 5, 17. We rejoice in that. We exult in that. And thank you for the work you're still doing in our lives, Lord. We want to be powerhouses for you. All you designed us to be. Help us to see how your blessings show up on parallel tracks. Sometimes as joy, sometimes as discomfort. Help us to not miss the greatest blessings just because we think they're going to be a little unpleasant at first. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.